Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network for bookish people, people who like books. If you want to reach those people on the internet, go to Litbreaker. Dot com and find out how you can advertise on a bunch of great literary sites on the internet. Sites like The Nervous Breakdown, Paris Review, Large Hearted Boy, The Rumpus. What else? I can't remember. Electric Literature? Litbreaker.com. Go there. Read the site. Find out the information. Litbreaker.com. Litbreaker. It's an online advertising network for bookish people. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person and just hey, one time. How's it going? Right. Welcome right. to the Other People Podcast. My name is Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. Paula Priamos is my guest. She has a new novel out called Inside V. It's a psychological thriller. It's available now from Rare Bird Books. You'll hear Paula and I having a conversation here in just a minute. A lot is going on in the world. A lot is going on in my head. I continue to be worried about Trump. I can't stop thinking about Trump. Am I insane? I, I want to know what percentage of you out there are like, dude, just give it a rest. How many of you are with me? I'm fixated on it. I'm checking my phone for updates, following it. I'm following it like it's a, it's like a psychological thriller, a very twisted <laughs> psychological thriller. Am I alone in this? It's like a horror movie. It's a terrifying psychological thriller. Don't know how it's going to end. Tell me how it's going to end. feel somewhat optimistic about the fact that Mike Rogers, the NSA director, is going to be testifying tomorrow. Uh, former FBI director James Comey going to be testifying on, a, what is it, Thursday? So that's what's happening this week. 
Feels like it's going to be a big news week. Feels like maybe this is going to be the pivot point. Feels like maybe after this, people will finally start to, en masse, realize that the gig is up. But I could be wrong. Seems like there's always a lot of false summits in this weird political season. You think you're getting to the top of the mountain, or at least, or maybe the bottom of the valley. <laughs> false naders. Okay, we've hit bottom. Okay, we did it. We hit bottom. Oh, wait, what? We didn't hit bottom. I've been getting, uh, you know, lots and lots of mail. I'm going to share some with you here. I got a letter from a listener named Jake. He writes to me, uh, Hi Brad, as a longtime listener to the podcast and a fan of your first novel, I was overjoyed when you reported on the show that your book had gone to market. Now that joy has turned to despair. I want you to cast aside any thoughts that the book is too sad or lacks some kind of redemptive quality. Hanya Yanagahara's A Little Life is a grim 700 pages completely lacking in any redemption and in parts is downright death-affirming. It's a bestseller. People lap that shit up. Also, cast aside any thoughts of audience appeal. The majority of your hardcore regular listeners are going to buy this book anyway just because you wrote it. You have a guaranteed readership. Obviously, the book is, as you say, deeply personal, so the decision is yours to make. But I'm dying to read your book. Signed, Jake. Be careful what you wish for, Jake. <laughs> uh, no, I appreciate it. It's a nice thing to say. Uh, and, and I think where I'm at with it is just pressing pause. And this may mean the death, like the official death of the book forever and ever. Or maybe at some point I'll have a look at it and I'll reread it and I'll decide that I want to pursue, uh, you know, independent publishers or small presses or whatever. Because... I never got to that. I sort of pulled the plug on the process and pressed pause after big publishers did not swarm all over the book. I have high expectations for myself and maybe unrealistic expectations. Not that I wanted every publisher to make a bid, but I just felt like, well, look, if there's not a clamor, if there's not like some kind of competition to buy this thing, then I didn't do it right. Is that fucked up? Maybe it is. But it just rattled me. It made me worried. I spent so much time on it. You know, it's like, oh God. I don't know. So the question now becomes, when will I find time to revisit this thing in a sustained and uh, intensive way? We'll see. TBD. And thank you again, Jake, for... Uh, the kind words and for writing in this next letter comes from a listener named Ryan. He says, dear Brad, a group of friends and I are looking to start our own podcast. We're still in the early stages of planning, learning to use our recording equipment and programs and creating chemistry on the microphones as a podcaster and a host whom uh, I've come to respect. What advice do you have for us as we embark on this arduous yet re rewarding endeavor? Signed Ryan. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how to host a, a show with somebody else. I've never done that. I'm having a co-host. You have to have really good chemistry. I think you probably have to have good chemistry 
off the microphones in order to have good chemistry on the microphones, though that could be wrong. There's a real intimacy to it. I don't think, I can't imagine, I mean, it's not that you have to be best buddies and hang out all the time with the people you do a show with, but there are certain people with whom you can really talk. I have people like that in my life. Like I happen to be able to talk with just about anybody. Not everybody, but most people I can have a conversation with. Sometimes though, it just doesn't work, but most most of the time I can pull it off. Uh, but there are certain people in my life who, for whatever reason, uh, trigger me. They can get me going. And there are people who, you know, who I can count on to, I don't know, uh, bring out uh, creative impulses. There are people who, there are people that I, that I know with whom I'm incredibly funny. Not incredibly funny, but I'm funny when I'm with them in a way that I'm not with anybody else. Like they know how to get the funny out of me. Do you have people like that in your life? Hopefully they're your co-hosts. So, you know, I can't really speak to the co-hosting dynamic, but I would uh, venture to guess that you're going to need some good chemistry with them. And you got to make sure you let each other talk. Like it's a weird, uh, you know, it's a weird balancing act with that many cooks in the kitchen. If everybody's just talking over each other, it's unlistenable. I think you sort of have to have a central host and then you have to have people who are willing to sort of be supporting players. If you have three chiefs and no Indians, do you know what I'm saying? Could be problematic. This could be the end of your friendship starting right now. It's dangerous being a podcaster. Otherwise, I think being honest, you know, trying to be honest and, and that's, that's almost a bad way of putting it. It's, What does it mean to be honest? It's like have clarity, speak with clarity and uh, presence, force. Be very, very much in the moment. That does all sounds cliched, but it's true. Be aware of what you're saying. Be aware of what the other person is saying. So yeah, listening. Hugely important, especially with multiple hosts. And then you bring a guest in. Yeah. You have to be a really active listener, very concentrated. Absent that it's hard to, you know, it's hard to get a real feel for the rhythm of the conversation. It's hard to ask good questions. It's hard to be funny. Everything gets harder. So it's all of that. And I think if you have a facility for it and you do it, you know, regularly, you're going to get better at it and you're going to enjoy it. And I think people listening probably will too. I will say that if you want to build an audience, you have to be consistent about it and committed to delivering new episodes on a regular basis and preferably on a set schedule so that your listeners can know when to expect new episodes. Otherwise they'll just go elsewhere. There's so many, there's so many things to listen to. So no, it's, I, I, I always call it feeding the stray cats. You have to feed the stray cats or the stray cats are going to go to somebody else's house. I hope that helps. And uh, thanks for listening, Ryan. I appreciate it. Good luck to you and your co-hosts as you embark upon this uh, journey and uh, you know experience the beginning, and, uh, beginning of the end of your friendship, which is 
almost certain to immolate in the fires of podcasting tension as you all try to be the star of the show. It's going to be like a fucking supernova. I'm sorry. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest again is Paula Priamos. Her novel is called Inside V. It's available now from Rare Bird Books. I had a very good time talking with her. She was just here momentarily, uh, a moment ago, minutes ago. And we talked about stuff. We talked about some interesting stuff. Things get Things get interesting towards the end as they sometimes do. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Paula Priamos, and her novel, One More Time, is called Inside V. And at that point, I realized that one of the essays I'd written in the L.A. Times magazine would make a great start to a memoir. So I dropped the novel, and I went straight into the memoir. So I have this pattern of once something's done, I like to move on to something else. Something totally different. Yeah. Just so you're not bored. Yeah. And, and you have, like, you have, you feel like, uh, like a desire to not be pigeonholed. Do you feel like you want to work across genres? Oh yes. I, I, oh, it drives me nuts when people say that you can't write outside of your own genre. I think that's total BS because I've already published personal essays. I've published short stories, I've published a memoir, and now I've published a psychological thriller. I think if you put your mind to it and you study you study other books, see how they're put together, you can do whatever you want. Okay, and that's what I was going to say. You must read widely then if you're yeah, writing widely. Yeah, I read a lot. But you read a lot of different things. Right. And I kind of read a little bit more um, male European writers, which is kind of interesting. Mm. I've been reading them a lot more because like they tend to be leaner. Like Herman Koch. Okay. And, um, what he wrote the dinner. Yeah. Yeah. And he's written a couple others. I actually use the dinner in a couple of my classes. I really like that book. What's the French uh, guy who just won the, uh, Nobel, like Patrick Modiano. 
I haven't read him. Yeah, I think so. that's his name. But uh, his books are all really short. I like them lean. I do too. Why yeah. is that? I don't... Well, because I think there's... It's not easy to write a simple, clean sentence. Yeah. And I love to have the clarity. I like to... I like to have prose really speak on the page. And um, I think that so many books are bogged down with excess extraneous details and asides. And I get bored. I want to move on to the rest of the plot. To the, to the good stuff. Yeah. Like nothing but, like you just want the essential stuff in there. Right. So like with Philip Roth, I don't read his big epics. I go straight for the leaner stuff. Yeah. I'm the same exact way. Mm-hmm. Like if you sh- if you put a stack of books in front of me, I will always pick up the thing. I mean, right. is this maybe like we're using our like supposed preference for, you know, polished prose to mask like laziness <laughs> or justify it? I don't know because I read um, Gone Girl and I'm not kidding. I had it on my nightstand. It took me about nine months to get through it. I kept falling asleep. So I don't know. Yeah. I have a hard, like, I've talked about this before, uh, how difficult it is for me to find books that I really love. But if I really love a book, I, I get so excited about it. But I'm not somebody who can just pick up anything and, and read it. And, you know, there are people who are like that. They, they, can, they can almost read any book. Right. I'm very picky. Yeah, for me, I I can't help but start to study how it's put together as I'm reading it. And so if I start to see that a writer's getting lazy or too repetitive, and I start thinking, God, where was your editor? You should have cut this out. You could have cut that out. You could have streamlined this here, there. Then I start to wonder, should I continue this book or should I move on to something else? Like with Girl on the Train, I figured out who the killer was about, I guess I want to say about the first 30 or 40 pages, and I was kind of bummed. Yeah. That sucks when you, I mean, it's a thriller yeah. and you feel it, figure it out early. It's yeah, why, why I even went, slog oh, through the rest? man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when you talk about studying books, because like you said, you've written memoir, you've written a psychological thriller now, you've worked in different areas, and you have to study books in order to figure out how to write one. Um, when you're reading someone and you are dissecting a book, is there any like, like serious method to it? Are you sitting there writing down notes? Are there specific things you look for? Are you charting like plot lines or is it more of just an intuitive, you know, thing where you're feeling the way the story is built and making mental note of it? I'm kind of making mental note of how it's put together. Um, if there's kind of, I like to write my own books with a cliffhanger at the end of each chapter, maybe even other little cliffhangers throughout the chapter to keep the reader wanting to read more. And so I'll look at other books and see if, if other writers do that with their work. So like right before I started The Shyster's Daughter, my memoir, I did read really carefully, um, Jeanette Walls's memoir, The Glass Castle. I looked at how she put hers together and I, I liked how it read almost like a novel. So I really wanted to write mine like a novel without just, you know, all of that narration, the narrative that just, you know, the authorial voice that people just yawn and go to sleep over. They all, uh, there's this misconception that a lot of memoirs are written that way. But I use scene and plot and a narrative arc, all that kind of stuff in my memoir. And I think there's kind of a turn in a lot of memoirists writing their memoirs that way now. 
Okay, and, you, and tell me about your memoir. Um, it's it's about it's, I see it as a love letter to my father. Um, it starts with how he called me the night before he died to tell me he had just cheated death and he had actually been held up at gunpoint. And my father, he was in his car. The gunman was outside the car with the gun pointed at him. And my father was crazy. He's just hot-tempered Greek. And he ended up flipping the guy off just reflexively, and he drove off. And so he called me to tell me he had just cheated death. And then the next morning he had died from something else. And so... What was it? You have to read the book. Okay. okay. The end. <laughs> but, but that's how I started the book. And then it goes back to my childhood and it, and it moves forward. And then I separated every couple chapters with these quotes. And they were called What They Told Me After He Died. And it's just a series of different quotes from people I interviewed after he died about what his life was like, because his life kind of took a turn after he was disbarred. Okay. And so what kind of childhood did you have? You grew up in Southern California. Yeah. My parents broke up when I was a teenager and my mom and my older sister, my younger brother, they went to our second home in middle Tennessee and I stayed here with my father because my father was just heartbroken and he loved my mother a lot. And, um, I was afraid he'd kill himself if I left too. So I stayed and I'm glad I stayed because not just because, you know, my father needed me, but because he and I were pretty close and he stayed on me to make sure I got through school and I think I became a more successful, stronger person because I stayed with him. What, was it challenging? Yeah, but he was also really smart, and he also built me up a lot. So so even though things were falling apart around us, he would, he, you know, he would tell me, you know, you're going to be okay. Um, things are going to work out for you. You're very smart. You're attractive. He always built me up. And... um I, I didn't realize it till now when, as a teacher, I see some of my students, some of them are real fragile and vulnerable, and it's because they've been beaten down at home. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, take, it's, it means a lot. Uh, I see it as a parent, just like when I tell my daughter, who she's like six years old, I tell her she did a good job. You see them puff up. And right. It, you see it with adults, too. I mean, right. you know, it's just, it's nice to be complimented. Right. It sucks to have somebody beat you down. Right, and be really critical. And uh, my father didn't do that. He always would build me up. That's nice. Yeah. Good guy. Uh, and then what about you? I mean, did you keep in touch with... I'm, I'm assuming you kept in touch with your family as they moved to Tennessee? Yeah. And I now have a pretty close relationship with my mother. It was very strained for a while, um, but we're pretty close now. She because, was, was she bummed out that you stayed with your dad? Yeah, but she knew. she knew that... I was going to stay. She only gave me 45 minutes to decide oh, if God. I wanted to go with her. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's where, that's where things hurt. It, it cut deep. And, um, so things were strained for quite a few years. Um, but then when I was writing the memoir, I had to think outside my own, my own hurt and pain. And I had to think, why did she leave? And once I got into you know, what I thought her perspective was, I understood why she left and um, made more sense. And um, she read the book and she cried. 
she thought that I was going to make her out to be, you know, evil and bad and all of that, but I didn't. Yeah. You know, that's one of the functions and it gets, a lot of times people will roll their eyes when you talk about, uh, the catharsis of writing a book or, you know, all that kind of talk, but there is a real value, uh, especially if you're working on a memoir or something personal in taking apart your own life in writing and really spending time looking at it deeply. Yeah. And I think you can, you can learn your, you can learn more about yourself and be self-critical and realize your part in something. I hate memoirs where, where the person's the victim and all these terrible people did all these bad things to me. Um, I don't, you got to look at your own part and what happened. So, so it's a little harder to do to look at yourself and kind of, kind of be self-critical. But, um, I, I tried my best to do that. Is it painful? It, like, it was a little painful, but I feel like um, it's something I'm proud of, something that I was able, you know, I'm able to kind of carry on my father's legacy in some ways because, say, on the Internet, it just said, it used to say, Paul Priamos disbarred for moral turpitude. He, he got in trouble for embezzling a million dollars of his client's money. But the other side of that is... The client was a bad guy, and my father was representing his wife during the divorce, and he unearthed the million dollars that the guy was trying to hide from his wife. And, um, of course, my father spent it, but the point was is that the guy was a bad guy, and so I, I wanted to tell that story, the other side of that, how my father ended up becoming as corrupt as many of his clients um, because of kind of, because of his job as a defense attorney. And when you finished writing that book, did it feel like you had unloaded like something, uh, that you really needed to unload? Like, did it make you feel lighter in a permanent way to have, have told that story and done that work? Yeah. And I felt close to my father and I, because I remembered all of these really good times. So it's not just this dark memoir. There's actually some really funny moments and, um, I captured it. And so I feel like I captured him in the book and what it was like being raised by him. So well, it's something I'm pretty proud of. Well, and it's also, you know, it's, it's always, uh, you know, as you get older and you start to realize that your parents are human beings and flawed and all that that entails, um, I don't know. There's something really poignant about that. And I guess some of us learn that earlier than others. Like at what age did you start to have that sense of your parents, like their fallibility? Well, my father, right when I was a teenager, because I saw, I saw him break down right before my eyes. Uh, my mother, I, I understood her more as I got a little older because, um, I waited a while before I, before I started to write the memoir, because I think you need a little distance to look back on, on what you're writing about. Um, but I feel like I understood, I understood her more, um, because I took the time to look back and objectively look at her. Um, and I think writers need to do that. Did she, did she, uh, rank your book on Amazon? Did she give you? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> none of that. No. Okay. So, then you wrote a, a psychological thriller. Yeah. Why? Because 
I love thrillers. I love films. I love Hitchcock. I love um, I love novels, psychological thrillers, uh, mystery books. I read all of them, and I and I love um, I love figuring things out. And a lot of times, I'll figure it out too soon. But I think that's because I read so many of the books that I may be figuring them out because I'm a little bit more of a expert reader on the subject. Okay. So how many books, uh, how much reading are you doing? How much reading am I doing? Yeah. You read like a book a week or? Oh, not that much. Okay. If it's something I like and I know it's written well, I purposely take longer to read it. So like the last Herman Koch book, I took, I took a few weeks to read it because I really wanted to enjoy it. But otherwise, like you always have something in hand. I always have something on my nightstand. Yeah. Okay. Um, and did you find that writing a psychological thriller was easier than writing a memoir? Much, much easier. Although shockingly enough, it took about the same amount of time. Um, the memoir took maybe a little bit more, but definitely under a year. And, uh, the, the thriller, I just enjoyed writing it. It, it just, it, um, I had so much fun with the plot twists and how it, how it all stayed true to the characters. And, um, I just, I just enjoyed it. And so I think I'll be writing psychological thrillers for a while. I was going to say, you're going to do another one. Yeah. I'm already halfway through another one. Did you outline? Um, I do this odd thing. I don't know if other writers do it, but I have a spiral notebook and I always write longhand first. And I've heard other writers say, oh no, I go straight to the computer. I can't go to the blank screen. I have to, I have to write first, handwrite first, because I feel more intimate. I feel like it's more intimate if, if, um, I'm handwriting it first, freehand, longhand rather. Um, and then what I do is I'll... I'll end a chapter and I'll say, where do I want to go next? And I'll outline, say, the next few chapters. But I feel like if you know the entire book, then it might just ring false. So I, I, I like the fact that I know where it's headed. Like in Inside V, I knew where it was headed. I, I kind of had an idea how I wanted it to end, but I was also open to it ending in a different way. So long as it felt natural. Okay. And so, uh, let's see. I mean, I'm trying to think of a, for some reason when you were talking, I was thinking to myself about, what was it? It was like, I think the guy's name is Alex Honnold. And I have no idea why he popped into my head, but it was something to do with psychological thrillers. And I have had this guy on my mind all day long. <laughs> He's this rock climber who just climbed the face of... Oh, Yosemite? Yeah. I saw him this morning. I, I'm, like, I'm still obsessing about him. And uh, I think it had something to do with like thriller and plot twist and drama. But anyway, he's been on my mind all day. I don't know if you... Does this, does this move you at all? Does that give you any kind of... Uh, I think he's insane for going up the side of the mountain or the rock yeah. with... No harness, no nothing. Yeah. I, like it makes me physically like nauseous to think about it. I actually start to have like a, like a, I, my, my hands start to sweat <laughs> when I, like if you ever, have you ever watched him climb on like video, like 60 minutes did a feature on him. I've never, actually my husband and I were having dinner at a restaurant called a cliffhanger and it's right off the side of the San Bernardino mountains. And as we were eating, 
you know, you can look out at the valley below. And I look up the rock, and there's a guy rock climbing as we're eating. And he, of course, had the proper equipment, but it was just so odd to see him just hanging off the side of the rock. Yeah, it's not a natural sport. No. And I, and I should say, too, that I think this qualifies as maybe the oddest segue in the history of the show. <laughs> We are recording, for those of you listening, we're recording this at night, which is a, a relatively new development in the podcast, because now that I have this day job, I have to record at night. And so uh, I have, I've had like two shots of espresso, a glass of wine. Uh, it's about almost nine o'clock and I'm liable to just start recalling things haphazardly <laughs> like Alex Honnold free climbing <laughs> up the face of Yosemite. <laughs> as uh, my guest talks about writing thrillers. <laughs> so another thing that, that is on my mind, I've been talking about it with almost every guest that I have uh, in this room, is like the current state of things in uh, the United States of America. Uh, I'm obsessed with it, and I can't stop thinking about it, and I'm worried about it, and uh, I'm reading about it constantly. It is playing out on my phone and on my computer screen somewhat like a thriller. Is this your experience of it? Are you disengaged from it? Well, I've actually been using a book uh, by Noah Hawley called Before the Fall in two of my classes, and it deals with the subjectivity of the media today. And I feel like the 24-hour news cycle has really done so much irreparable damage to the reporting of the news. And now that Trump's in office and Trump made such a farce when he ran um, against the other Republican um, nominees, or candidates, rather, that um, I feel like things just can't be taken seriously anymore in our country, and it's very sad. Everything feels like a reality show now. It's like news is entertainment. Right, right. And they have to, in order, and like it's also, there's a lot of money at stake. And so if you don't have, and I think this is why, like back in the good old days, like before things got super surreal and crazy, remember how, like whenever there was like a missing white girl, that was kind of like the, the running trope, you know, some white girl would go missing in Aruba or, you know, it seemed like the news media would always latch onto these stories. Right. And I remember reading a piece of media criticism about this phenomenon and it was basically that it's a ratings getter and mm -hmm. it's an ongoing narrative. And right. that sort of stuff is catnip to the 24-hour news cycle people because it's like serialized entertainment. You come back and you tune in every day to find out what's going on with the mystery. And it seems like that sort of example gives you an indication of how, how twisted things are. Because uh, you know they have a real incentive to make sure that they uh, feed you, you know, titillating stories and cliffhangers. <laughs> you know, it's, you're, kind of, you're kind of in the same business as a thriller writer almost in order to get you to come back and tune in so that their advertisers will pay them as opposed to serving the public and reporting the news in a way that is um, fact-based. Like, what do you want to call it? Journalistically responsible? Because the facts are boring. Yeah. And um, you can't speculate when you have the facts. And if you speculate and you get all these different pundits speculating, um, then you fill up your, your hour for each program. And I think that's what's happening. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who are tuning in are taking that speculation as truth. And that's where it's really problematic. So do you watch cable news or do you just tune it out? 
I watch it sometimes, but I'm an independent, so I watch everything. I'll click on from CNN to Fox News to MSNBC, because somewhere in the middle, there's the actual truth. Yeah, I like to watch all of it, too. Um, like, like I feel like I feel like that's the only way to actually be a responsible consumer of news media and a, like in some ways a responsible citizen. It's to try to get a sense of all the different chatter that's going out there, all the different biases that are represented, all the bullshit and to parse it and to think critically about it and to try to mine out the truth from that. And then what I've also found, uh, especially in the age of Trump, is that going to uh, Twitter of all places and looking through, uh, you know, I've been creating lists and news media feeds and stuff like that where it's not even necessarily paid journalists, but it's people who are really trying to parse the news mm -hmm. and who are then reporting on their Twitter feeds. Like that is often for me a more accurate indicator of where things really are. And it's also often quicker to get to the truth than mm -hmm. the mainstream press. Yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate. It's, it's really bad. So what do you think is going to happen? With what? With everything. Like, how do you think the oh Trump presidency God. ends? Like, where are we heading? God, um, I don't know, to be honest. Uh, I was surprised he won. And I, I actually, I didn't vote for either one of them. I didn't vote for Clinton and I didn't vote for Trump. Um, I wrote somebody in because I just couldn't stomach voting for either one. Um, and I don't think I was alone in that. So but, what, but what are your politics? Like, I know you're independent, like you're unregistered, but do you really feel like you're in the middle of some, like two polarities? I took a test once and I'm right smack in the middle. So, yeah. And, and, um, I, my husband's more conservative and I just hold my tongue. I don't always, I don't always, um, argue with him about politics, but I am a political junkie. Um, I used to, oh my God, I used to love Woodward and Bernstein and, and, um, I still love Bob Woodward and I love his books. I still read his books. And um, so I, I love politics and I'll always stay involved. I'll always um, keep up on it. As for Trump, I don't know. Every time people try to take him seriously, he ends up doing something or saying something um, that makes people worried again. I mean, just the latest thing with a travel ban. Um, you know, if he was if he was a good leader, he would try to get all of us Americans on board. He would tell us we all need to feel safe. He would tell everyone, including Muslim Americans, that we need to feel safe against terrorists. He's not doing that. He's, he's, turning, he's turning one ethnicity against another, and I think that's the wrong approach. Yeah, and, and like it, I think most people, I, most people I've talked to, most people in my Twitter feed, a lot of people in the literary community, uh, you know, really are upset about the way that things went in the election, um, the hacking or the, the, you know, the apparent, uh, meddling in the election. It's not even apparent. It's, they meddled, they hacked, uh, and how that outcome, uh, might have been tipped in his favor and taken from Hillary. Uh, I have a lot of, I guess I have a lot of friends who are really big, you know, huge Hillary Clinton fans. I voted for her. I would prefer her to be the president instead of Donald Trump. But I also have like kind of like some 
mixed feelings about the Clintons. <laughs> Uh, so it's rare for me to be sitting with somebody who also does. Cause usually people, it seems like most people I know don't. And I'm like, have you not read about the Clintons? Like the right. Clintons are not right. a clean slate. Now no, no, no. I have to emphasize, I would, I voted for Hillary. I would a hundred percent love to have her be in office rather than him. If I had the choice between the two. Um, but I understand people who are, uh, uncomfortable with the Clintons. Yeah, she her word is hard to trust simply because um, she couldn't stick to one narrative all the time, and and so she switched around a lot, and um, she's got a lot of baggage, and um, she that's why it was hard for her to actually win over Bernie Sanders because there were people who were holdouts. Um, so even though it should have been a simple election for her, it wasn't. Yeah. Well, and she's like, but spent 30 years like in the, in the arena. And I think you just, you know, if you're at that level of politics and you're in that arena, you build a record and you step in it a lot. And I think that's part of the problem, but you know, it's and, a lot of self-inflicted wounds too. Well, and I, I always tell people that I feel like she was the Democrats version of McCain. And so it kind of was like her turn, just like it was his turn to run. And, um, that's what it seemed like to me. I mean, I think her real, her real run was when Barack Obama beat her. I think that was when she was at her best. Well, and McCain's real run was 2000 exactly. when George Bush beat him in South Carolina, right? right. You know, with so it's uh, kind of like, oh, we owe you. And we saw how, how they fared both well, of them. Well, it's an interesting point because there's, if there's such a thing as like timing, you know, mm -hmm. there are certain politics, it's, it's your time. Right. And if you miss that window where your particular sensibility and your particular politics and whatever it is that you represent or people feel you represent, like there is a moment for it. But once it passes, it's, it's pretty usually, you know, it's usually hard to recover. Exactly. And she was just so much more passionate about politics when she was running against Obama. I mean, she really, in my opinion, when they debated, she was on. And I think that he kind of ended up having to parrot what she would say. So I really think that was her time. Now she lost and she was secretary of state and that's something, you know, she should really be proud of, but it just seems like the time had already gone. And you weren't when, when it came down to uh, the election day, I guess we live in California. So you didn't feel like your vote would like for an, in, for a write-in candidate or whatever would be, it's not going to swing the outcome because you knew that she was going to win the state of California. I had somebody tell me that I was throwing my vote away and this is a democracy and it's about my vote and it's, it's about what I feel is right or wrong for the country. So in my mind, I didn't want either one of them. And so I voted for somebody else and I feel like I did the right thing. Okay. So who, like, can you even do this? Can you even play this game? Is there a politician out there? that you think is good like right is, now. Yeah. Who, who out there is doing it? Well, who out there do you think when you look at them, you go, wow, that, now that's a person that I think I would actually want to follow. And that I think has a real, um, like moral and political vision for the country that people should rally around that would do everybody some good. Wow. I mean, huh. you know, like it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard. It's to really hard. Um, now, see, you'll think I'm crazy, but like I said, I'm an independent. The two politicians that I think are passionate would be Elizabeth Warren and Marco Rubio. And 
Republican and a Democrat. They they sound like they know what they're talking about. I'm with you on Elizabeth and, Warren. <laughs> and I don't know. I think they both seem impassioned, but... So do you have any ideology? You have no ideological, like, are there any issues that you throw your, put, put your stake you know, your, your stake in the ground and say, no, like I can't move off of this issue. Someone has to be with me on this issue or I can't support them or because those are two very ideologically opposed politicians and you would be happy with either of them. You asked me the question if I, it, who I thought um, was a good politician oh, oh, and okay. objectively looking at them as good politicians. Ah, okay. Okay. I think they're both articulate. They're on point, that kind of thing. Good, good political performers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, I get it. I get it. Yeah. But like in terms of, but like you keep, you, you're not saying that you would accept like, or, or could potentially see yourself voting for, for either. Cause that would be quite an independent. I see. I would have to, I would have to wait and see. I would have to wait and see. I honestly, I honestly will put one issue away if another issue is more crucial at the time. So like there's a lot of people who say uh, reproductive rights, we need to keep abortion around. Well, abortion's not going anywhere. That's, that's, not, that's off the table. It's not ever going to go anywhere. Um, so that one, you I, think would, so? I would, oh yeah, that's not going anywhere. You sure? Yeah. How are you so sure? You can quote me. <laughs> really? Yeah, you can quote How me. How are you so sure? Because I, I feel like there's so much concern about that. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. It's been around for decades. It's crucial. And even though there's a couple of Supreme Court justices who talk a lot of bluster about, oh, we should get rid of it, they haven't gotten rid of it yet, and I don't see it happening. I really don't. I think it's a necessary thing. Um, you could call it a necessary evil. Some people see it that way. Um, but you hear these stories of rape victims or you hear stories about young girls um, and they get their abortions and they need to get them. I had a friend myself who was only 14 years old. She was a Catholic. She never told her parents that she was pregnant. And um, I helped give her money to pay for the abortion. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're like, it's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough issue. Mm-hmm. But there has to be safe and legal access. Right, right. I just don't see any other way around it. And I feel like it's the kind of thing, I mean, to me, it's a, you know, it's a personal decision. Right. Right? Why do we even have to debate it? <laughs> I don't think we need to really. I really don't. I really don't think that's going anywhere. Um, mm. I'm for gay marriage. Um, so I'm glad that that was enacted. So um, the only thing that I'm more... Uh, conservative in terms of uh, money, I guess, and spending, but social, social issues, I lean towards the left. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it, it's like, uh, I think that there's a lot of, uh, obviously a lot of chatter and a lot of like very vocal and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not flamboyant, but there's just a lot of, uh, like the, the really loud disagreements get a lot of airplay. Right. And this is again, go, going back to what we were talking about with respect to the news media, like this is what gets eyeballs and this is right. what has people tuning in and getting emotionally invested in whatever show they're watching or listening to. But I think that when you, if you were to sit down at a table with 10 people, five of whom are, uh, you know, quote unquote conservative and five or five of whom are quote unquote liberal. Like, I got to believe like most 
people, like most ordinary people are like close on closer than we think on a lot of issues. Like I hate to feel like we really are that divided and that's how it often feels. It really does feel like there is such a split between conservative America and liberal America. And I can even, you know, maybe I'm part of the problem because I can get <laughs> kind of angry, uh, on Twitter sometimes around what I perceive to be ignorance or, you know, stupidity, um, you know, coming out of Congress or whatever it happens to be. Uh, but I, I just feel like most people have common sense. Most people want their neighbor to be all right and don't right. want to infringe upon their freedoms and, and this and that. But, uh, I don't know. I, I hope that's the case. I, I really do. I think be, being a professor makes me more independent as well because I'm always playing devil's advocate. So I'm always looking at the opposing side and I do my best not to ever show my opinion to the class so they have no idea where I stand on any issue. So they feel free to speak openly about all kinds of things. Like I'm not See, going this to is judge what, them. This is why I was a terrible teacher. <laughs> <laughs> do, but do you ever feel like taking the independent position or calling yourself as an independent is a, is a way of, of, um, avoiding having to make a tough decision or take a stand on anything? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, no, because sometimes I'll vote Republican, sometimes I'll vote Democrat and I have in the past. So it, it depends on, you have to, I'm one of those people that, uh, you have to earn my vote or I'll, I'll be disappointed in both. And I don't vote. Mm. I'll still vote because I believe in the practice of voting. I think it's a privilege. And I think that our country's lucky. I think a lot of times we're spoiled and we whine and cry about small little politically incorrect issues when really we've got it pretty good for the most part in comparison to other countries. We're hanging on by our fingernails, I feel like, though. You think so? I do. I feel How, like, In what ways? Well, I just feel like uh, our system, uh, its checks and balances, its institutions are under a lot of stress because of this president. I worry about it a lot. And I worry that he is uh, a Russian a uh, agent. I feel like he's. I feel like they've got stuff on him, and he's doing their bidding for money and to not be exposed. Like, am I? This is like, this is what I really believe this in my bones, and I don't. That the Russians have stuff on Trump. Yeah, like money, and I believe that they um, might have a P video. <laughs> like, I sound crazy, but I'm de I, I'm dead serious. You don't think this. This is not stuff that you're entertaining and like concerned about. No, I, I honestly, <laughs> I, I, I think that if so far Trump has not done what Russia has wanted him to do, um, he, he bombed Syria and the Russians didn't want him to do that. Yeah. But he bombed like an airfield. He notified them before he did. It was sort of like the kind of thing that somebody who was in cahoots with Russia would do as a way of throwing off the scent, like drop some bombs on the airfield. We're going to move all of our people off this way. You'll get to look like you flexed your muscles, but you won't have done any real damage. They were flying planes out of that airfield the next day. Okay. Yeah. See, um, I'm reading too much. Concern. I, I do. I, I don't, I honestly, I don't, I don't see that. I don't see that though. Okay. I really think that, um, there was something else that he did that irritated them. Um, I know I forgot. But what about having the Russians into the Oval Office and giving them classified information? 
Which, what do you mean? He had Kislyak and Sergei Lavrov, so the ambassador to the United States, and then Sergei Lavrov was essentially their top diplomat, I believe, like their secretary of state, if um, I think. But and they, see, you're making me defend Trump, which is just, <laughs> I thought I would never do. So congratulations. No, no, no. I, I ju- mean, wow, I'm going to defend him right now. I'm just glad to have somebody in here who doesn't totally agree with me or isn't exactly on the same wavelength as I am. Okay, because- well, here's my, here's my defense of Trump here. Okay. And trust me, it's not much, but as president, he's trying to forge his own relationships with these different people. And I'll give you an example. President Obama caught hell when he tapped the Russian diplomat on the knee and said, don't worry, after the election, I'm going to have more flexibility. Med- or Medvedev. Everybody, everybody got upset. I feel like Trump's doing the same thing, where he's trying to say, hey, you know, we're going to be on the same page. And to be honest, unfortunately, we have to work with some of these different countries with terrorism. And, and I really feel, and you want to talk about being paranoid. I really feel like terrorism is like our world war three. I really do. I feel like Britain, um, the U S all the middle Eastern countries, um, all of the countries in, um, Asia, Africa, we all need to come together Yeah, it's and do something. Well, yeah, I don't know. It's like such a tough problem uh, to figure out how to solve. I think inequality is the root of it. That's like the best I can make sense of it. It's like, I feel like there is such a disparity between the haves and have nots in the world. And when people don't have access to capital and they can't feed their families and they can't feed themselves and they don't have any hope there and they don't have any education, they're susceptible to crazy ideologies and desperate acts of violence. Okay, but now I'm going to defend it. Yeah. Um, the guy in Orlando, yeah. who, the shooter in Orlando. This is a good counterpoint. He had a family. He had right. a wife, and he had a kid. Yep. And he was doing okay economically, as I understand. Well, Os- 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 Osama bin Laden was a right. son of millionaires. And right. the guys who, uh, yeah, I mean, so it's not that simple. And some of those uh, British terrorists just the other day, they were doing okay as well. And so uh, I don't know if I I buy that idea. I don't even know if I do anymore either. It's just, I think that they hate Western civilization, many of them. And what I don't like to see is that um, many white people are saying, oh, we've got to go against the Muslims. And and it turned out that, um, what do they call the the guy who runs the mosque? What's his name? The imam. The imam. The imam in Britain actually told Scotland Yard that the the bomber, the suicide bomber at Manchester, he was he was um, a threat. So, in that sense, you know, there there are uh, Muslims in you know important places serving important roles in the in their religion, and they're they're turning people in. But again. It's so slow. You report somebody and they don't follow up or they don't follow up in time. There's not enough manpower. Right. So I think that turning on each other isn't the answer either. And I hate to see that. And I think Trump does that a little too much with his travel bans and all that kind of stuff. I think he divides more people. And then the people like you who really can't stand him, and I don't like him much either, um, it just further distances myself and everyone else from him when he when he 
act so reactionary like that. So friendly wager. Uh, I think I'm going to bet you okay. that Trump is going to be impeached <laughs> and exposed as a, a, a Russian spy. As a Russian, no, not a Russian spy, but like uh, it's a Russian, uh, you know, stooge. They have him. They have stuff on him, and he's doing their oh, bidding. Oh, you're convinced about sex tape or something, huh? Well, I think it's more money. I okay. think he's about money and deals and laundering money, and he's sort of been in business with them for a long time. And I think that um, American banks wouldn't lend to him, and they would. And I think that that's going to be proven to be the heart of it. It's money laundering and collusion to hack the vote. Um, not necessarily vote counts, but like voter rolls and you know fake media. I think that he's going to be proven to be guilty of that. And the only reason I want to say it is just because uh, that way it's on tape. And if I'm wrong then I'll have to live with the embarrassment of having it on tape. I like the stakes of that. Do you disagree? Like, do you, are you less, it sounds like you're less convinced that that's the case. I'm less convinced that's the case. Yes. Do so you think he serves out a full term? I think he serves out a full term. Um, I think the vice president Pence, he's, he's a much more um, composed guy and I think he would be a better president. So if Trump had, he's going or, down too. You think so? Yeah. I think, it, I think, Trump. He's in on it too. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think uh, Pence. Uh, Pence knew about Mike Flynn. Oh my god! I'm telling yeah. you. Oh my god! You got to read deep Twitter with me. And, oh my uh, god! I think that Paul Ryan, from what my my sources on deep Twitter are telling me, that Paul Ryan is oh also going to get Paul his Paul Ryan too. And it's going to be it's going to be President Orrin Hatch. Oh my god. Okay, how much you want to bet? Because I'm going to take the bet now that you think all three of them are in cahoots with Russia. Uh, I think because that, I think I'm going to win. <laughs> I know I'm going to win. I think that they're caught. I think they were caught on tape. I think Paul Ryan's caught on tape with knowledge that there was Russian money coming into um, the. But Russia has interfered with our elections in the past. They always have. But not this successfully. So, so the counter argument would be that people are upset that Clinton lost and therefore they're blaming Russia. But in all fairness, she did say things that upset coal miners saying she was going to put them out of business. Um, and she lost Pittsburgh. I don't know if you can blame it all on fake news. To be honest, I don't think people read that much. I mean, some people read, they read the fake like, news. But fake news is on like their Facebook feed. But, people read I mean, that stuff are, all the are time. You not, do you not have a brain and you can't think for yourself? I mean, I'll see something ridiculous. Like, remember there was that thing that was going around that Morgan Freeman had died? And um, I thought, what? There's he did no die, way. didn't he? No, he's around. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I mean, that kind of stuff. I, I, I mean, I think you have, to, you have to have some common sense. And I, I think that people duck personal responsibility in our country far too much. And I think people should be, you know, when they, when they go into the voting booth to vote, they should actually do the, their homework and figure out who they're voting for and why. I don't think you can blame it on the Russians. Although, although I think that they're, I mean, Putin's done some really awful stuff. I've read up on him. He's done some really scary stuff to people who oppose him. He's killed people. Yeah. I mean, maybe not with his bare hands, but he's... he's, No, he's had people killed. He had a guy poisoned, that kind of stuff. Multiple. It's really scary stuff. He's a bad guy. Yeah. All right. So what happens if I win this bet? You're going to send me like a fruit basket, like an edible arrangement? (laughs) I will. (laughs) The the best one. (laughs) The chocolate-covered strawberries? There you go. All right. And vice versa. 
vice versa. Um, so, okay. So are you going out on book tour or anything? I've been doing some stuff. Um, I did a reading in Redlands. I did a reading at Book Soup. Oh, and I, and I'm supposed to be doing a reading in San Francisco later this year. Um, I did, um, a reading, uh, why there are words. Do you like that part of it? Yeah. Do you like going out and like speaking in front of crowds and like doing the, like reading from your book aloud? I, I enjoy talking with the audience more than the reading, I would say, but I still like reading. Yeah. Um, and I like doing interviews like with you and other people, um, and talking about different subjects, not just about the book. So you like when I ask questions about like the, the you're r- cracking me up with your <laughs> Russian stuff. So this has been I'm fun. You, it's the greatest, it's actually it's been a, a lot of fun. It's the greatest scandal and in the I history can't of the Republic. You are this and, and we're, we're being taped. You are the first and only person who's gotten me to defend Trump on anything. So congratulations. <laughs> It's my special gift. My God. What now about, I'm going to go home in shame. What about religion? What about religion? Uh, <laughs> where, what do you think happens to us when we die? What, do you have any religious or spiritual belief, uh, like, you know, or system that you live by? I, I had a spiritual experience when I was pretty young. And so I kind of fear God now. What so happened? I, well, I'm tell really, me about it. I'm really convinced he's up there. And um, I don't want to tick him off too much. What do you, okay, so what was the spiritual experience? You'll think I'm crazy. No, please. Okay. I was crying, and my sister was ignoring me, and my mother was ignoring me. It was Christmas morning, and I was a little girl. I was crying, and my father had left to get batteries for some of my toys. And um, I said, I hate my mom. I hate my dad. I hate my sister. I hate you, God. And I was just crying and I was looking at the Christmas tree and this voice came up from the corner of the ceiling, this thunderous voice. And it just said my name three times. And it was so frightening to me. And this wasn't just kid imagination. No. What did it sound like? What did the voice sound like? Was it masculine? It was masculine. It was thunderous. Was it Morgan Freeman? And it was something that my sister and my mother definitely would have heard because they were just a few feet away in the kitchen. So no, it's there's. I know it happened. So so what did the voice sound like though? I want to know what God's voice sounds like. <laughs> I can't. I can't. What can you I'll, compare it to? I can't compare it to anything because it was so. It, what was so strange about the experience was that it was really loud and it came from the corner of the ceiling. So it wasn't even coming from the proper place. So and it just said, Paula. Yeah, a little like that, but, but a little three. deeper. It was just really, really deep and it scared me. I mean, I don't know what the, I don't know if I was supposed to feel comfort in it, but I didn't. I'm like, How oh loud my God. was it? How loud was it? Very, very loud. Like loud as like you're at a rock concert and there's a speaker. Right. That and, loud. And, but, and but, my but, sister and my mother should have heard it. And they didn't. They didn't hear it. Were you hallucinating? No. Were you on anything? No. Cough medicine? I was like nine years old. Well, I know, but I mean like cough medicine? No, I wasn't on cough medicine. Did you sleep the night before? See, you asked me. You asked me and now you're, you know, No, but I'm, you're I'm, interrogating me. No, but it's good. I want to try to get the, I just want to try to get the details. <laughs> this is a big moment. It's what happened. It's what happened. And you asked me is, you know, whether or not I have any proof that a God exists and I think that some people have their own experiences, and that was mine. Wow. Yeah. That, that's terrifying. 
It was. It's a little scary. It was a little scary, but I think that it was probably meant to comfort me or, you know, to tell me to knock it off and grow up one or the other. And is that what you took away from it? Yeah. Did it change you? It made me believe more. Yeah. Did and you start going to church or anything like that? No, no. I, I'm not. I'm not that religious where I, I go to church all the time. Okay. Um, but were you, were I, you I raised do, with religion? Yeah, I was uh, baptized Greek Orthodox, and then my mother was Lutheran. Okay. Um, more modern Lutheran, not the strict ones. Right. And um, so I, I went to church a little bit, but then I stopped. You know, when their marriage was in trouble, and um, I only go sporadically now. I don't go that often. Well, that's a hell of a story. I'll see you ask. So. I'm glad I asked. Yeah. See, I haven't told anybody that story either because it makes me sound crazy. No, but I'm glad. I mean, it, it, it's, I'm always moved by stories of the supernatural told by people like yourself who don't seem to uh, be insane. No. And I, this is what's so odd about it. I know it happened. I've accepted that it happened. And I don't think it's going to happen again. But there was something to be said about a little girl screaming, I hate you, God, and I hate everybody. And I was crying. And I think it was supposed to be some type of comfort. That's what you, that's what you that's think? That's what I think. That's what I've come away with And now. he just said, you, he said your name three times. He just said times. my name three times. And I didn't stick around. I ran into the kitchen after that. You were just looking in a non, like an unfocused way in the direction of the scene. I was looking at the Christmas tree. Oh, right. And then it came up from like the left corner of the ceiling. And that's where I heard the, my name, the sound. So like sometimes when I'm listening to or watching a show about these people who have had alien encounters, like mm -hmm. UFO, like alien abduction. Yeah. Like a lot of these people are like they have a screw loose. Right. But there are people who you will be listening to who seem eminently sane and rational. Who I am. Like, I'm not on any meds or anything. Right. Right. And so <laughs> I've been sane my whole life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, I you know, but it, my point is that they can't all be lying. Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, the, yeah. like someone has got to have seen, like with this many people claiming to have seen spaceships come down and all this kind of stuff, there's a part of me that's like, you know, I want to be the skeptic and will show me some evidence that is irrefutable because, you know, no one ever gets a tape recording of God saying their name by the Christmas tree. Right. It always seems to happen and be slippery and here and gone. But somebody has probably seen something is my feeling right in human history. There has to have been some kind of contact. It's a weird universe. Yeah. And I mean, it's kind of self-serving and ego, egotistical, I guess, of us to say that there's no other life out there. It's just us here on earth because it's been proven that life existed, I believe, on Mars, right? And other... Wait, has that been other, proven? Did I, I miss that? I think that it's been proven that there was some type of organism on like Mars. Like a I, mean, yeah. I know they've been finding like traces yeah. and all this kind and of stuff. And there was water on Mars, I believe, right? Okay. I think. Um, so I... And I don't think we know for sure how far the planets go, how far, if, you know, we just know of our universe. So there could be more. I mean, I, I don't think about aliens or anything like that. Have you ever seen one? No. No. So no contact? No. No UFOs? And, and I'm not... I'll see a science fiction film, but usually because there's not a good thriller playing. It's all about thrillers for you. Yeah. I love to see those first. What about a science fiction thriller? Those are okay. 
but I like just the I got it. regular it, whodunits. It opens on Christmas Day. <laughs> God comes down in a spaceship. He looks like Morgan Freeman. Oh, my God. Why does everyone think God is Morgan Freeman? That's because he has such a great voice. It's that, but he's got the whole, he's got the whole package. Like, the, just the look and the, the way he carries himself and the style. Like, there's something... Like, he is mid- pretty regal with how he carries himself. Right, yeah. He is. He's I, kind of a badass. He is. And it's weird because I started watching him when I was a kid on The Electric Company. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> like, I go way back with him. He's been around my whole life, it feels like. I never watched The Electric Company. You never did? No. What you, is that? It's a TV show. It's like, oh. it used to be on, like, right, it was, like, paired with Sesame Street. Oh, okay. You didn't do that? I, I didn't do Sesame Street either. Hmm. I was a Scooby-Doo fan. I was a Scooby-Doo yeah, fan as well. I dug Scooby-Doo. Did you ever have a crazy period in your life where you freaked out and did lots of drugs? No. I've never, okay, you won't believe this, but I've never done anything any drugs not even smoked pot why just well my father scared me okay and when i was a teenager he said if i pick you up um from the police department you'll be sorry that i did so i believed him and so i drank a little i got drunk like everybody else but i always turned down drugs always always and then i also saw this really heartbreaking well it was a heartbreaking story. Uh, this one kid that was my age and he was friends with my father was friends with his father and he started with recreational drug use and long story short, he ended up getting stabbed in the lung in Linwood in a parking lot buying drugs in his early twenties. And he had to keep the knife in his lung because if you pull it out, you'll die and you'll bleed to death. So he had to drive to the hospital with the knife in his lung. Did he know this, that if he pulled it out, he yeah, would die? Yeah, he knew not to pull it out. He he just had the sense not to pull it out. Oh, okay. But yeah. he didn't have, like, there's not, because I never heard of that. I'd pull it out and die. No, don't pull it out. Okay. I'm glad. <laughs> Thank See, God. you learned something. Thank God I talked to you. From me coming here. <laughs> <laughs> Can now survive a, a stab to the lung. There you go. Thanks to my conversation with you're you. You're welcome. So, but that, but that story scarred you and you're like, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do the, these drugs. Yeah. Get stabbed and, in the yeah. lung. And then I've seen like my husband is a recovered or a recovering um, alcoholic and drug addict. And I saw what it did to him and I want no part of that. Now, right. don't get me wrong. I love a good glass of Merlot. Yeah. And I was at a Duran Duran concert a few months back and I had a couple glasses of champagne. I was feeling no pain. Wait, so Duran Duran still plays? Oh, don't you dare insult Duran Duran. I'm not, it's not insulting I have their them. backs, man. Simon LeVon. Don't mess with Simon and don't mess with John JT. Taylor, John don't Taylor. mess with JT either. Is that a big band for you when you were young? Oh, they still are. You I know, but me? I mean, like, is it rooted in your youth? See, that's the thing. I just joke that they're in my DNA. I was a fan of theirs since I was 12. And so I just make no excuses now. I go to their concerts when they're playing here. I went to Agua Caliente, saw them two nights in March. I saw a train a couple weeks ago in uh, Chula Vista. I love concerts. Live music is a good experience. Oh, it's so much fun. It's a good human experience. Yeah, it really feels like you're alive in that moment when the music's just blaring and you're dancing. It just... It, I really look forward to going you whenever dance? I can. Oh, yeah, I'm a dancer. You are? Yeah. Like, do people dance? I guess people do dance at Duran Duran concerts. That's dance music. Yeah. They have plenty of... They're not just save a prayer and, you know, they're, they're classic hits. They've got all kinds of um, clubby style, fast-moving, up-tempo songs. They still sound good? Oh, yeah. They look good. They sound good. 
Um, they My had... sister was so in love with those guys. She had John Taylor posters <laughs> all over her bedroom when I was growing up. Yeah, I did too. They had um, they had a new album called Paper Gods that came out uh, in 2015, and it, it's it has some great songs on it. I'm fascinated that they're still churning out new albums and going on tour. I had no, I mean, and this is not uh, an, an, this is more of an indictment of me than it is of them. Like I just, I had no idea that this oh, was yeah. still happening. Yeah. And I mean, I love that they're still doing it and they look like they're having a good time when they're up there. Um, they look good and, um, you know, it's always depressing if you see somebody and they look terrible. Like I saw Billy Idol a few years back. He looked great. He's sober. Um, and he's still playing. He's playing in Vegas at House of Blues. So some of those guys are still rocking. Do you like any new bands or is it mostly like you like the bands of your youth? Um, that... No, I listen to Bruno Mars. Yeah. Um, I'm all over the map. I, when when I was driving down here from Lake Arrowhead, I had my phone, my music on my uh, my Google my Google app music. And um, I have everything on there. I have a li- I'm embarrassed to say a little bit of Justin Bieber. Um, Bruno like Mars, a couple of his songs, just a couple. <laughs> Don't judge me. Oh, and no then um, Train, I'm big on Train. A lot of Duran Duran. God, I'm so out of touch. You know what I'll tell you about music these days? Is that because I listen to streaming services like Spotify or whatever, uh-huh. I just like turn it on and let it play some playlist and I don't even know what I'm listening to. See, that's how I found out I was a train fan. I didn't know I liked them for the longest time. And then I started looking at the music I was compiling, and I thought, train, 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 train. I had about seven of their songs, and I thought, oh, wow, I think I'm a fan. I think it's official. <laughs> Wait, but how did you know? How did you know what you were compiling? Like, I... See, I mean, I I just was hearing it on the radio, or, oh, I like this song. I like their song, Meet Virginia. I like this one, that one, over the years. And so I just started putting them on my playlist, and then I realized, oh, you you probably are a fan. Yeah. And then I went to their their um, show, and they were great. So I'm officially a fan now. Do you have that thing Shazam that where you can like use that app to like if you're if you're, you're out in public and you hear a song playing and you don't know what it is, you can ask the app, and then the app will tell you. No, no, I don't have that. I feel oh, like... I also like OAR. What's They're, that? They were the warm up band for them, and they were great. Is that a new band? They've been around for a while. You would recognize their songs. You would probably, you've probably already listened to them. I'm sure. Because there were songs that they were playing. And went, oh, yeah, I like that one. I like, like that one. As you were saying OAR, I was momentarily uh, decoding that as Electric Light Orchestra. <laughs> that's, how, that's, that's where my brain is at right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what else? I mean, I've asked you about drugs. I've asked you about religion. I got a good God story oh out of you. Oh, my God. I can't believe you got a God story out of me and you got me to defend Trump. I swear. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, but it's been great talking with you, and <laughs> I congratulate you on uh, the publication of your new novel and commend you for being able to work across genres, and uh, I wish you well on the next thriller. How far into it are you again? A little over halfway, okay. but I kind of want to enjoy um, this novel and, and um, you know, doing readings and events and stuff like that before I... Before I finish the new but, one, are you going to do this new one in ten months as well? Is that like your is that is that your gestation? It, that's been in the past, but um, I don't know. It it may just be well. I kind of see this one. I know where I think it's going to end. Again, I'm not married to it. If it if it moves and you know 
goes a different direction, I'll go with it. So how long you been working on it? I I put it away for the last few months. So oh, okay. yeah, but it's only been well, it's only been I worked on it for about five months, and I'm a little over halfway through. So we'll see. It's going to be ten months. It's probably going to be ten months. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I wish you luck and I thank you for, for, uh, coming down here from Lake Arrowhead and talking with me. Oh, no problem. It was fun. All right, folks, there you go. That is Paula Priamos. Her novel is called Inside V. It's available now from Rare Bird Books. You can find her online at paulapriamos.com. You can also track her down on Twitter. Her handle over there is at writergirl9. It's Paula Priamos and her novel one more time is called Inside V. Available now from Rare Bird Books. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app, the Other People app. This podcast has its own app. It's free. Everything about this show is free. The show itself is free. All episodes, free. The app is free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. It's the best way to listen. This is a listener-supported show, so if you like it, if you listen to it regularly... Throw a couple of bucks in the hat, would you please? You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can also donate via PayPal. There's a link in uh, the sidebar on the show's website, a PayPal link at otherppl.com. So it was a delight to talk with Paula. It's nice to talk with somebody whose uh, political assessments don't necessarily align perfectly with mine, which tends to be the case these days, on this show and elsewhere. I live in Los Angeles. I talk to writers. I feel like everybody mostly feels the same. She's a little bit, a little bit of a, an outlier in that sense. It's good for me to have my assumptions tested a little bit. I do feel like it's a binary situation, though. This is the way it feels, like, emotionally for me and uh, in my bones, you know? It's like either Trump is impeached and, you know, or resigns or whatever, and this thing implodes and he goes away, or he wins and the country is wrecked. It feels that dramatic to me. Like, maybe I've just been reading too much and watching too much cable news. This is my tendency. I get too immersed in this stuff. I think I'm going to go read about Reality Winner and go to bed. <laughs>